Hey there, welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. For a startup to succeed long-term, we believe you gotta get three things correct. People, product, and profit. We spend a lot of time talking about the product portion on this show, but if you don't have good, happy people in the trenches, it's gonna be damn hard to build a good product that leads to profit. Hiring is of course a core people challenge here, but assuming your startup has a handle on that, what makes or breaks a happy employee? According to a Gallup study, 70% of the factors that contribute to work happiness are directly tied to managers, and one in two employee exits are made to escape a bad one. In short, nothing's gonna torpedo your startup's talent pool like a bad boss. So this week, we're looking at what makes for a great one. Ask our guest, Kim Scott, and that comes down to feedback, giving it, receiving it, and encouraging it. Kim is the author of the new book and recently christened New York Times bestseller, Radical Candor, How to Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. She's also a CEO of Candor Inc., which builds tools for making feedback easier. Previously, she's been a CEO coach at Dropbox, Twitter, Qualtrics, and more, as a faculty member at Apple University and a longtime director at Google. Kim sat down with Intercom Managing Editor John Collins and shares what makes feedback both a powerful tool and such a challenging task, the how and the where of giving radical candor, hint, it's not slack, and why managers must prove they can receive feedback from their reports and their peers before ever dishing it out themselves. If you like what you hear and want to get more of Kim's insights, we're actually giving away 50 free copies of the Radical Candor book to our listeners. Simply contact us through the messenger at blog.intercom.com, share why this resonates with you, and you'll be entered to win. And now, let's hop in the studio with John Collins and Kim Scott. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. So today on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor, the book which promises to help you become a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. Kim, you've got lots of Silicon Valley experience. You worked at Google, Apple. You've been a CEO coach for the likes of Twitter and Dropbox. But before that, you worked at, in your own words, three failed startups. And the common yes. common thread between them, you said, was bad management. Where were they failing in that regard? What, what kind of things were you seeing? Well, I'll tell you the kinds of things, in fact, I was doing because I was making a lot of the mistakes. So one of the most painful experiences of my whole career was hiring this guy, we'll call him Bob. And I really liked Bob. He was funny, he was charming, he would do stuff like we were at an offsite, one of those management offsites where mm-hmm. you're playing some stupid get to know you game that everybody <laughs> hates, but nobody dares be the grouch. He <laughs> yeah. says how ridiculous it is. And Bob was the one who's brave enough to raise his hand and say, I've got an idea and it's gonna be much faster. Let's just go around the table and tell everybody what candy our parents used when potty training us. And uh, weird, but fast. And the weirder (laughs) thing was, you know, everybody remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in the meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So anyway, odd, but I found it charming. We all loved Bob, found him fun to work with. Just one problem, however, with Bob was that He was doing terrible work. And it was puzzling because he had such a great resume. I learned later that the problem was he was smoking pot in the bathroom every day. But anyway, maybe explained all the candy. But I didn't know that at the time. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And because I liked Bob so much and didn't want to hurt his feelings, 
I didn't tell him when his work wasn't really good enough. I, I would sort of give him head fake praise. I'd say, oh, Bob, you're so awesome. You're so smart. Uh, I, I'm sure that if you focus on this, maybe you can make it a little better. Mm-hmm. And of course, it never got better. And after 10 months of this, the inevitable happened. And I realized I was if I didn't fire Bob, I was going to lose half my team. So when I sat down to have the conversation with Bob that I should have begun 10 months ago, frankly, when I finished, he, he pushed the chair back from the table and he looked right at me and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question is kind of rolling around in my head with no good answer, he said to me, why didn't anyone tell me? And I realized that I had failed in a bunch of different ways. And because I had failed, Bob was getting fired. I had failed to solicit feedback from Bob. Uh, I had never asked him what I was doing well, or more importantly, badly from his perspective. Maybe I was doing something that was driving him so crazy. He was forced to toke up in the bathroom, but (laughs) I don't know. I never will because I didn't ask him. And was that, nev- that was the light bulb moment, was it, where you realized the, y- yeah. you have to ask for feedback? You have, you have to, to ask give for feedback. feedback. Yeah. yeah. And, and also you have to give it. I had never given Bob any praise that was meaningful. The kind of praise I was giving Bob was just a head fake. And I'd never given Bob any criticism. I had never found the courage to tell Bob when his work wasn't nearly good enough. And so that, that was another two ways I had failed. I had failed to solicit praise and criticism. I had failed to give praise and criticism. And perhaps worst of all, I had failed to encourage it. I had failed to create an environment in which everyone would tell Bob what was truly good and what was truly not good when he was going off the rails. And it was a, it was a terrible moment in my career and probably the moment which I started writing this book in my head. And the reason why Russ and I started Candor Inc. and the reason why we're doing the Radical Candor podcast to help other people avoid making the mistake that, that I made with Bob. And I mean, that gospel of radical candor, I mean, it's, it's a great term. But for listeners, what's your, what's your definition of the term? And why do you think it is so difficult for many managers to grasp? It's such a simple thing that it's surprising that it's difficult. Because at its heart, radical candor is simply the ability to care personally about the people you're working with and to challenge them directly. Because you care about them, you want to help them get better. So it's a pretty simple idea, but also very rare. That's why I call it radical candor. And I think the reason why it's so rare, there's two reasons why it's rare. One has to do with caring personally. And I think the problem here begins when we're about 18, 19 years old. We get our first job and we're told, be professional. And for an awful lot of people, being professional means, gets translated somehow to leaving your emotions, leaving your humanity, leaving the very best part of yourself at home, and and coming to work as something that's less than human. And that is a terrible mistake. I think in order to be a great colleague or a great leader or a great follower, any of them, You've, you've got to bring your whole self to work and be more than just professional. I'm not saying be unprofessional, but you've got to be a human being. And so that's one, one reason why it's rare. And another reason why it is rare is 
happens really when we're 18 months old, not 18 years old. And we all have parents or somebody who tells us at some point, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't (laughs) say it at all. And now all of a sudden at work, it's your job to say it. And undoing a lifetime of training, undoing an instinct that's been pounded into your head since you were 18 months old is really hard. So one of the things that that I did for myself, and it helped me, and then I tried it with a bunch of other people, and it helped them too, so I hope it'll help all your listeners, is to think about what happens when you fail on one dimension or another, on a radical candor, what I call the radical candor framework. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, when you do challenge someone directly, but you fail to show that you care personally, I call that obnoxious aggression right? Commonly called the asshole quadrant. Am Mm -hmm. I allowed to curse on your podcast? You absolutely are, yes. Okay, good. So so the reason why I don't use that word to describe obnoxious aggression is that I don't want you to use this framework to judge yourself or to judge other people. It's very tempting to draw out the two-by-two. Vertical axis is Vertical dimension is is care personally. Horizontal is challenge directly. And to start writing names in boxes. I beg of you, please, <laughs> I implore you, do not do that. Use the framework to guide conversations, not to judge yourself or other people. So obnoxious aggression is what happens sometimes in a conversation when we get mad or impatient and we fail to show that the person that we're having a disagreement with or even... A, the person we're giving praise to, that we care about them as a human being. Uh, and, and it happens to all of us. We all are sometimes behave like we, jerks. We felt out of any... ourselves. Yeah, we just yeah, let it go. I, uh, <laughs> I, I can tell you plenty of times when I have behaved like a jerk. And I bet even you, who are mm-hmm. a wonderful human being, <laughs> I bet even you have occasionally behaved like a jerk. So that's obnoxious aggression. Okay. Now, there's also a lot of times, and I would say even more times, when we do show that we care personally, when we're trying to be really nice to somebody, but we fail to challenge them directly, sort of like I did with Bob. And that I call ruinous empathy. Okay. Ruinous empathy is responsible for the vast majority of workplace mistakes. The boss uh, and, who and wants frankly, to be everyone's friend, isn't it? I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mistakes, frankly, in all relationships, but let's focus on work relationships now. And so I think ruinous empathy is really the thing to avoid. We, we like to tell stories about the colleague who's, a, who's been a total jerk, but it's actually pretty rare. Most people are not total jerks, <laughs> in my experience anyway. Maybe I've just led a sheltered life. Um, now, of course, there's a, there's a third mistake that we all make from time to time, too. And that's where, and it usually happens because we're busy or focused on getting our own work done, and we just need to retreat to our own corner. But it's, it, these are the times when you neither show that you care personally nor challenge the person directly. And that, when you fail on both dimensions at the same time, I call that manipulative insincerity. Okay. So, so hopefully sort of naming mistakes when you screw up on one dimension or another with some colorful language will help you avoid those mistakes. Yeah. I mean, I think people are always worried just what's the line between being candid 
and then actually causing damage to to the employee yes. or you know or to someone you know appears morale i mean that seems to be the thing i think that most people are afraid of like how do you judge that between you know constructive feedback versus hey you're crap at your job yeah yeah so i think it's really important question because radical candor gets measured not at your mouth but at the other person's ear and it's difficult to know what's going on in someone else's head, what's going on at, at their ear. But it's not impossible. Most of us are actually pretty good at reading people's emotions. So the most important thing you can do is to make sure that when you're delivering feedback, whether it's praise or criticism, to do it in person because then you can see the person's reaction so that you can understand whether you want to move out on the care personally axis in other words, you may not have been clear enough and you may need to, to challenge a person even more directly, or do you need to move up on the care personally axis and react to the emotions that you're seeing, react with compassion, show the person you care about them, that you're there to help them, but not back off the challenge. Just because somebody's getting upset about what you said doesn't mean that you've made a mistake. It just means they're having an emotional reaction and you need to react with compassion. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But I think that's the place where people need to feel empowered that, as you say, because someone is getting emotional doesn't necessarily mean you've given, you know, the wrong feedback or, or you need to stop, you know, well, maybe maybe you exactly. do need to stop at a certain point. You use your common sense, but it, it is an emotional reaction rather than necessarily what the feedback is, is, is the issue. Right. I mean, I really want to reassure people that just because somebody is upset about what you've told them doesn't mean you've said it in the wrong way. There are no magic words. When you have to criticize somebody about their work, and most of us pour our heart and soul into our work, we spend more time working than we do doing anything else in our lives. So when you criticize somebody's work, they're likely to be upset about it. They, they wish they hadn't made a mistake. And your job then is to react with compassion, not to try to find some magic words so that the person won't get upset because there are no such magic words. Sure. It sounds though as if you are, you're not a big fan then of things like email feedback or, you know, Slack or any of these other tools we all use every day now. You think face to face, particularly, I suppose, if it's a big issue is, is the way to go. Yes, I think or even if it's a small issue that if it piles up might become a big issue. I think the best feedback I've ever gotten in my career happens in impromptu two minute conversations in the moment. And the only way to know how someone is reacting, the only way to know how your feedback is landing is to be able to see the person when you deliver it. If you send feedback over email, you have no idea if you were clear enough or if the other person is upset. If you try to type it into a tool or type it into some sort of process, you're, you're failing to communicate because most of communication, there's different measures of this, but at least 80 to 90% of human communication is nonverbal. It's looking in the person's eye and seeing if, if their eyes are getting wide or if they're scowling at you. It's noticing if their arms are crossed. And most of us are actually really good at interpreting emotions. If we bother to see them if we're if we're talking face to face with someone it's usually pretty unmistakable how someone is feeling about what you're saying
Sure, absolutely. And I like that you say, you know, feel free to grab someone for two minutes face to face, because I think an awful lot of people in, in the tech industry kind of keep everything for the one to one. The weekly one to one is where everything is going to be solved. I mean, do you think that that's a mistake to sort of store up all, the, all these huge, feedback initiatives? Huge mistake. You're one on one with especially if you're a manager and you have an employee. It's the other person who gets to set the one-on-one agenda. Your job as a manager in a one-on-one is to listen to the other person. So I think saving up feedback for a one-on-one is, is going to do a bunch of bad things. First of all, you're not in listening mode if you have a list of things you need to say. Second of all, a good thing to do, a good use of feedback in a one-on-one is to solicit it not to give it, to ask for feedback. And third, if you use your one-on-one time as an opportunity, is the only opportunity to give feedback, you introduce such artificiality into the whole feedback process. If you have a friend or a family member and they've done something that bothers you, it would be crazy to wait for a regularly scheduled meeting <laughs> to uh, to raise it. I mean, it, the weekly you family know, meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would, it would, it would make it so. It would make it so awkward. It would ruin your relationships. And so, don't do that at work either. Just if you see something, say something and say it right away. The other problem with saving up feedback for a one-on-one is that. It's going to make you start to dread your one-on-ones mm. <laughs> because nobody – it's hard to give feedback uh, and, and nobody, nobody wants to do it. And so if you're saving it up for a one-on-one, you're going to start canceling your one-on-ones. You touched on something there for managers, you know, that they have to be, you know, open the floodgates and solicit feedback before they can ever give it. How do you as a manager, though, convey to your reports that it's not just OK to, to give feedback on my performance as a manager, but you actually want to encourage them to do it? It's really important to do it. I, I always say, don't dish it out before you prove that you mm-hmm. can take it. So, so you earn the right to give feedback by soliciting it. And there are four things that I recommend that you do when soliciting feedback. And you should do this with your boss. You should do this with your employees. You should do this with your peers. You can even try it with your spouse. Four things. First thing is to come up with a go-to question. For the same reason that you're reluctant to give feedback, the other person is reluctant to give you feedback. And so it's really important that you come up with a question that falls trippingly off your tongue, that you're comfortable asking. So right now, as you're listening to this podcast, come up with your go-to question. I'll give you two examples. My go-to question is, Is there anything that I could do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me or in the case of my spouse to live with me and or my kids could ask them that too. But I I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Christina Quarles, who's the CEO of OpenTable, and she said, I could never ask that question. It would feel so artificial for me. The question that I like to ask people is, here's what I think. Tell me why I'm smoking crack. So whatever Whatever question works for you, yeah, uh, use it. But come up with something you can ask. Mm -hmm. So that's step number one is come up with a go-to question. Step number two is to embrace the discomfort. Because remember, the person doesn't want to give you any feedback. And so the best way for you to get them to say something 
is to embrace the discomfort to to because it's tempting to feel like oh if i make you comfortable you'll tell me the truth but the thing that's going to make the other person comfortable is to let them off the hook and say oh everything's fine Mm. you can't do that so simple technique for embracing the discomfort that i've learned is simply this shut your mouth and count to six in your head i only just made it to two yeah. Six is a long time. And you got to count like one, one thousand, two, one thousand. If you count to six in your head, the other person will say something just to break the silence because most people can't endure six seconds. <laughs> We're silence, all very right? uncomfortable with silence. Yeah, it, totally uncomfortable. So, so having shut up for six seconds, which is hard, the person's going to tell you something when they say something. It's really important not to react defensively. So step number three is to listen with the intent to understand, not to respond to the person, right? Mm -hmm. And having done that, your fourth step is then to reward the candor. Now, it's easy to reward the candor if you agree with the feedback. You fix the problem and you tell the person that you fixed the problem. It's hard if you disagree with the feedback, which you will disagree with some of the feedback. Feedback is a two-way street. You don't have to agree with all of it. It's This is not a, thank you, sir, may I have another kind of situation. <laughs> so if you disagree with the feedback, the thing that I recommend that you do is, first of all, in the moment, find that 5% of what they said that you can agree with. And second of all, wait a day or two so you're sure you're not in a defensive frame of mind. And then explain to them why you disagree. Sometimes the only reward you have to offer is a fuller explanation of your point of view. Yeah. And of course, it's it's not just critical or, or, you know, feedback about problems or issues. I mean, I think a lot of people have problems praising people who work with them or or for them. And I think, is it maybe that people are afraid to patronize, you know, their, their teammates? I mean, what do you think people struggle there as well? I think that a lot of people struggle with praise because it... Praise can feel arrogant. Like, who am I to judge what's good and bad? I think that's one reason why people struggle. I also, we we get a lot of questions from our podcast. Listeners of of the Radical Candor podcast write in with interesting dilemmas on why they're reluctant to praise. I think another common trend that we've seen is that they're afraid that if they praise somebody, they will cause them to rest on their laurels. And I think that the thing to keep in mind here is that praise, when it's really specific, doesn't cause people to rest on their laurels. It teaches them what to do more of, what to keep doing. It's guidance. If you think about it, not as feedback, but as guidance, praise lets them know when they're going in the right direction. Criticism lets them know when they're going in the wrong direction. Positive reinforcement is always good. Yeah, yeah, but it's not merely positive reinforcement. And if you praise in public, it's letting an individual, but not just that individual, but the whole team know what success looks like and feels like. Because sometimes people do something and they don't know whether it's good or bad and and they can't know unless you tell them. Hmm. So it's it's important for for that reason. I think another reason why people are reluctant to praise is that it often feels insincere. I think so many people have been taught to give the so-called feedback sandwich, uh, which is say something nice, then give the criticism, and then say something nice again, that we've all had the experience of 
BS praise, (laughs) insincere praise. And so people are suspicious of praise now. And so don't give the feedback sandwich. Make sure that when you give people praise, it's sincere, that you really mean it. And I think another common mistake that people make with praise is they think that praise is the way to show you care personally and criticism is the way to challenge directly. But that's that's exactly wrong. Praise should both challenge and show that you care. And criticism should also both challenge and show that you care. So I think that that realizing that both praise and criticism are going to help people achieve better results and find success uh, makes it much easier to give give praise that's radically candid. Sure. You, you'll know this better than most from your, your own early stage company days. But, you know, startups often feature many first time managers. And, you know, we, we've all been a first time manager. Where, where do you see them struggling most? I mean, what's, what's the mistake you, you've most often come across? It's really interesting. But I think the most common mistake, and it, this is not what people like to talk about, but the most common mistake is ruinous empathy. The most common mistake that first time managers make is they fear looking like a jerk. Mm -hmm. And so they don't tell people when their work is not nearly good enough. I remember when when I was early in my career and starting a company and a first-time CEO of a software company, I got this email from about 10 of my employees. And it was an article, and the article said that most people would rather have a boss who's a total asshole than a boss who's really nice but incompetent. And I started thinking to myself, do they think I'm a jerk or do they think I'm incompetent? And which one is worse? Uh, and I don't want to be – surely these are not my only two choices. I don't want to be either either one. And I think a lot of people fall prey to this false dichotomy, feeling like they have to choose between being competent and being a jerk. And, and you don't. You can be radically candid. You can both care personally and challenge directly. So I think that the majority of new managers make the ruinous empathy mistake. And then others make the obnoxious aggression mistake. <laughs> yep. They think, oh, if I'm too nice, then I'm not going to be successful. So I'm entitled to be a total jerk. They go in with all guns blazing because they, they haven't done it before. Right. But there's it's actually more rare than you would think. The okay. much more common mistake is ruinous empathy. You've said that to be a great boss, it's important to know your employees at a human level. I mean, what does that mean? Because I think that's maybe what some people are trying to do when they're, when they're too empathetic. Yes. I've, it's really interesting getting to know your employees. So, I mean, first of all, I will say that too much empathy is, is not about knowing people well. Often, it's about worrying whether or not they like you. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a big difference between caring personally and being liked. And too much concern about being liked is actually going to move you towards manipulative insincerity to an even worse place than ruinous empathy. So I think it's really important to remember that your job as a manager can sometimes feel like a lonely one-way street. You have to care, but not worry too much about whether or not people care about you. So that's number one. And, And that can be hard. One of the things that makes it much easier to do this is a simple career conversation technique that Russ Laraway, my co-founder, 
here at Candor Inc. developed when he was at Google and also rolled out when he was at Twitter. And these are three simple conversations. Like caring personally doesn't mean you have to blow your family off and spend have dinner with, with <laughs> your employees instead of your family. Let me just start there. Okay. But it does mean you have to take some time at work to get to know them. And but not huge amounts of time, but significant time. So career conversations involves three conversations with each of your employees, three 45-minute conversations. The first one is a get-to-know-you conversation. And this one often begins with a question, something like, starting with kindergarten, tell me about your life. Now, of course, if the employee looks horrified and would rather die than tell you about their childhood, you can start in grad school or, you know, five years ago in their career. Sure. You don't have – this is not um, you playing psychiatrist and them lying on the couch. It's just a get-to-know-you conversation, wherever they're comfortable starting. The reason to start with kindergarten is to imply, like, I want to get to know you at a personal level. And when you have this conversation, the thing that is really helpful to do is to notice when somebody has made a change. So if somebody was a cheerleader and they became a swimmer or somebody was on getting a PhD and then they went to Wall Street, like why did they make that change? So ask, when you see a transition, ask why. Mm -hmm. And usually what you'll learn is what really motivates somebody. Is it hard work? Is it adventure? Is it financial success, whatever it is that really motivates somebody at work, you want to know what those things are. And the reason you want to know is that when you understand the person, you're going to more naturally put them on projects that are motivating. You're going to more naturally help them find meaning in their work if you understand what motivates them at, at a human level. So that's the first conversation is sort of a get to know you conversation. Mm -hmm. That's about the past. The next conversation that you have with people is about the future. It's a dreams conversation. And this conversation is really important because you want to get away from the tedious promotion conversation, which is never satisfying for anybody. The promotion conversation is always about, why am I not getting promoted faster? So what you want to understand from somebody is at the height of their career, what does it look like? When everything is going just the way they want it to go, what is it going to look like? And, and usually people don't have one dream. They have three or four because almost nobody knows what they want to be when they grow up. And, uh, and, and those who do confuse the heck out of the rest of us. Yeah. Even, so even when we grow up, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, I sure don't know yet. Uh, so you, you want to make sure that you're giving people the space and the freedom to dream big. You, you want to understand what, what they really want out of life in the future and out of their careers in the future. And you want to sort of name those dreams and, and make sure there's three or four of them. And then the third conversation that you have is, is the more tactical one. And this is where you come up with a career action plan and you sort of think, okay, if, if you want, if let's say dream A, in my case, dream A is to be a great novelist and dream B is to be a great entrepreneur and dream C is to be the angel in the house. So what are the skills that I need to develop in order to achieve each of those dreams and how important are they for each of the dreams? And as you begin to talk through this, it, it becomes clear 
what you as the manager can do in order to help people take a step in the direction of their dreams. And so, for example, Russ was was managing somebody who was an ad sales person. Mm -hmm. And what she really wanted to do was own and operate a spirulina farm. (laughs) And that was one of her dreams. And so you sort of pause and think, oh, my goodness, what can I do for this? Like, what do ad sales have to do with own and operating a spirulina farm? But as they thought about it, one of the things she really needed to learn how to do was to be a better manager. And she was in a great place to learn how to do that. She was working for Russ, who's one of the leaders of people I've ever met in my career. Russ was working in Cheryl's organization, also Cheryl Sandberg's organization, also a great leader. So she actually, now all of a sudden, her work seemed much more relevant to her dream, which it hadn't before the conversation. So so it's surprising the things. When you take a moment to really understand what motivates somebody, what they want, and what the skills are that they need to develop in order to work, stay motivated sure. and <laughs> get where they want to go. Great. That's because uh, I think for, for most of us, that, that is a real challenge is, is connecting those dots. And, and and when you are faced with the, you know, the spirulina farmer who is, is currently selling yeah. ads for you, what, what, what do you do? Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> I think people are often afraid to get to know their employees because they're afraid of exactly that conversation. And it's so interesting if you plow in and and have it more relevant. Okay. And uh, Kim, your new book, uh, Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity, it's now New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. So congratulations on that. Uh, Thank you. And as we, I think, mentioned at the top of the show, we have 50 copies of the book to give away to our listeners. But what were you able to convey with the book, maybe, that you hadn't in your previous, you know, sort of advisory and consulting work and lectures to date? I think that the the reason for me to write the book is that so much of there's such a giant human dimension to management. And what I wanted to do was write a book that was not going to feel like most management books. It was going to feel like a book of short stories that would help people as leaders feel less alone because I think management often feels very, very lonely. And I was really happy the other day. I got an email from somebody who had read the book and listened to our podcast who was struggling, was alone in a foreign country, struggling with a new and hard management situation. And he said he got back to his hotel room and started listening to the podcast and reading the book. And he said, I felt like I had a good friend in the room with me. <laughs> and that's why we're doing what we're doing. Well, that's, not, that's not a bad reaction to get. Kim, listen, you've been very generous with your time. And, and uh, thanks for sharing with our listeners. Uh, so uh, thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.